Uh, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8 this evening. If I had to put a label on tonight's service, it would be, be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. When we looked at chapters 1 through 7, we really looked at the ministry of Samuel. And even though uh, last week we looked at chapter 7, even though Samuel didn't die at the end of chapter 7, his ministry really ends there, and it really kind of dovetails with Saul becoming the first king. Saul becoming the first king, not Paul the Apostle. Sometimes people get that confused. If you don't know the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are really two Sauls in the Bible, right? We know one is in the Old Testament, Saul, the king of Israel, the Israel's first king, who was a Benjamite. And we also know that there's a Saul in the New Testament whose name was originally Paul. Saul or Saul of Tarsus, actually. And then the Lord called, or you know, his name was Paul after that. And so we know him as Paul, but his real name is Saul. But this is a whole different kink, several hundred, um, several hundreds of years prior to um, the, uh, the Apostle Paul. And as we look at, the, like I said, these first seven verses are his, his, his ministry. And we're going to see him anoint Samuel king, and we're also going to see him anoint David king, and then Saul is going to fall from the from the picture. He's going to be um, off the, um, he's going to fade from the scene. But now we see in chapter 8 here, uh, through chapter 15, we're really going to see the life and the reign of King Saul, Israel's first king. And as we get into chapter 16, through the remainder of the chapter, we're going to see David. Uh, and so really these three characters in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to be reading about. And David is my favorite. Um, I certainly love Samuel. Saul is not my favorite, but I, I, I do love uh, David. Um, but tonight we will look at uh, chapter 8. And so if you recall, last week uh, the children of Israel had uh, lost the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, in chapters 5 and 6, the Philistines, they got into a battle and they took the Ark from them. And the Ark went on a series of... Uh, went on a, a tour, if you will, throughout the five, land, five cities of the Philistines. And because they had stolen the ark and because God was not very pleased with them, he inflicted uh, plagues upon them. And they kept sending the ark to other towns, and the same thing happened. So they sent the ark to Beth Shemesh. And then the men of Beth Shemesh were really happy to see it. And they were out of the Philistine territory, in a sense, at that point. And so they were excited, and they got a little too excited. And they looked inside the ark, and God smote them, because not even the high priest was supposed to look inside the ark. And look inside the ark, and only they were even allowed to touch it. You know? and, and even then, with poles that were uh, constructed for the purpose of moving it. And so, as a result of that, they send the ark. I mean, the Lord really... Um, brought a great destruction upon the men of Bashemesh, and so they send it again to a gentleman by the name of Abinadab, who lived in Kirjath-Jerim, and the ark stayed there. The Bible says here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, it says it was there for about 20 years. It was actually there probably 20 years before Samuel um, brought the people together, but in actuality, the whole length of time that it served in his house was about 100 years, actually. And so 
We, we saw that God had uh, brought the people of Israel together at that time, and Samuel offered and put this forth to them. He said, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you. And these were the false gods that they were worshiping. And so the children of Israel, they responded in a really positive way. And this is a good thing, because God was um, uh, working on their heart and bringing them to that place of repentance, and they did. And, 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 and they began to worship. And this was one of the bright lights in this period. It was a very short time, but as they're worshiping, as you would normally see it, whenever the people of God worship, and there's repentance, and there's a, a, a jubilation, a worship, it will always be met by the enemy. The enemy will always come at a time when the church is at its fervency, when it's in repentance, when it is worshiping its king, the devil always come against it, and, and this was no different here. As they were doing that, the Philistines set themselves in battle array and came after them. And if you recall, God sent thunderbolts and thunder and lightning and really kind of confused the army of the Philistines. And in their confusion, they began to run away, and the children of Israel went out after them and really um, had, a, they had a great victory that day over the Philistines. And from that point on, they really never had any problem with the Philistines. In fact, they even had peace with the Amorites, who were their perennial enemy as well. And the Philistines would still be around, and we'll see that as we get into Saul's ministry and his reign, really, we're going to see the Philistines coming again. Uh, but they're, they're not as big of a threat as they used to be, but they're sort of like gnats flying around your head, and they're just kind of a bothersome thing. And finally, when we get to David, we'll see God using David to finally root out the Philistines for good. And then we really don't hear anything more about them at that point. And so we get to that point at the end of chapter 7. It says, Samuel judged all Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit from Beth, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, and he judged Israel in those places. But he always returned to Ramah, which was his hometown. And, uh, and there he judged Israel, and he also built an altar there. So let's go ahead and read chapter 8, and then we'll go back and look at it. So we can get the context. It says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And there were, they were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they ask you to do. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots. 
and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to take his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and servants. And he will take your male servants, your your female servants, and your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants." And you will cry out on the day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like the nations, and that our king may, go, um, may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and they repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice. Make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. His city. So again, the title of uh, this evening's service, if I could put a title, is Be Careful What You Ask For. Be careful what you ask for. The Lord is so gracious. You know, he puts before us his will, his perfect will. (coughs) Excuse me. And we can either get in line and follow what the Lord wants, or we can step out and do our own thing. And this is exactly what the children of Israel did. Instead of continuing to be governed by God, instead of it being a theocracy where God governed them, and really, was it, was it so bad? I mean, when we look over their history, even when Moses was alive, and even when he passed from the scene, and Joshua came and took his place. And even when Joshua passed from the scene and there were judges that judged them, was it really so bad? He's, God still did all the things that he would normally do. He still provided for them. He still gave them direction. He delivered them from their enemies. I mean, how much better could it be? Was there anything that was lacking? And I think if you honestly look at it, you'll find that, no, there really was nothing lacking. So what purpose, then, does a king give us? Why would we want a king? Well, it's a funny thing about peer pressure, you know, because peer pressure is not just something that we deal with as individuals, especially when you're young. Peer pressure is, is, is incredible. The things that you wear, the things that you say, the music that you listen to. Am I like everybody else? And there's this pressure to conform. And all the nations around Israel had kings, and they had big armies, And you know, when you look at that, and Israel was very unique. It was unique among the nations. No other nation like it where God was their king. And yet, they reject God and say, that's not enough. It's not enough. We want to be like everyone else. Isn't it true of our our natural heart that no matter what God gives us, we're like sheep out in a pasture, and there's a, a barrier, and we see another pasture, and there's other sheep over there. And we're happy in our pasture for a while, eating the nice herbs and the grasses and everything like that, until we notice, hey, there's another pasture over there. And all of a sudden, you get up to the edge, and you're looking over, and you're like, you know, they, they've got it a little better than I do. I want to I <laughs> be over there. 
And then they start lusting for that other thing. They want to be just like them. Little do they know that once they get over there and they're over there for a season, then they'll get close to the fence or they're close to the rock barrier and they'll look over and go, you know, I really missed it back where I was. We really had it good over there. We're never satisfied. We find that true of the children of Israel as well. Let's go back to verse 1 here. They demand a king, and it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. And this is the only incident that I know of in Samuel's life where he probably wasn't hearing from the Lord. God called Samuel. It was unmistakable. We saw his beginning. We saw his when, when God really spoke to him and, and gave him a charge, a very specific thing. And yet, a judge is, was someone that the Lord raised up when Israel was crying out because of their oppression, because of their sin. God allowed them to go into, into have an oppression from an enemy, and then God raised up a judge. And Samuel was the last judge that we know of in the Old Testament. And so, you know, they, they cry out, but God didn't call his sons. God called Samuel. He called Samuel. Merrill Unger, who was a famous Bible commentator, he said, God does not ordinarily transmit a gift and calling from father to son. And that's true. God calls a person. It doesn't mean that his son and his grandson and his great-grandson, that they're all going to have the same calling. No, it doesn't work that way. God calls a specific individual. It may be fortunate, and it may happen from time to time, where there would be a father who's called and a son. And we certainly see that in the lives of Solomon and David. God called Solomon, and God certainly called David. There's no doubt about that. But as we go further into the monarchy, and Saul is the first one in this monarchy, we're going to see that it, it, it quickly became something of the flesh, where it was just when a man had, his, you know, had his, his firstborn son, that would be the next king. And that's kind of the way it rolled from then on. It really had nothing to do with calling so much as it was heritage. And so the office of a judge, or a prophet for that matter, is not a position that's given by man, nor is it a position that one takes upon themselves. It's something that God calls a person to. And that calling is not necessarily hereditary. It doesn't pass from dad to son. And God may call a man to do something extraordinarily, extraordinary, but that doesn't mean that God is going to use his son or someone close to him. God chooses individuals. He's not interested in nepotism. Nepotism, you know, is when, when those who have power and influence, they favor friends or relatives, and they put friends or relatives in, in positions of power. God is not into that. He calls an individual, and he doesn't incline to nepotism unless he has truly called someone in the family of a monarch. This very seldom occurs. So in verse 2, it says, the name of his firstborn, Samuel's firstborn, I'm sorry, uh, yes, uh, Samuel, was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Joel, his name is interesting. It means Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. And he was the eldest son of Samuel. And whenever you see names of sons listed, the first one is usually the firstborn. And, and that is the case here. So Joel is the firstborn, his, his second son, Abijah. And Joel, it's interesting as we get further on into the history of Israel, he was the eldest son of Samuel, the prophet. And he's also the father of a very prominent man in David's kingdom on his worship team, basically. His name is He-Man. He-Man the singer. 
You ever hear of He-Man, the singer? In 1 Chronicles chapter 6, it says this. This is just a little side note with Joel because it's, it's pretty interesting. It says, now these are the men, this is 1 Chronicles 6 verse 31. Now these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they served in their office according to their order. And these are the ones who ministered with their sons. Of the sons of the Kohathites, which was a member of the Levites, was he man the singer. And he was the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. And it's, I find that interesting because we're going to find out that Joel and Abijah, who was the second son, his name means Jehovah is my father. Both of these young men didn't do very well. They weren't stellar examples like their father Samuel. In fact, they were quite a disappointment. But I find it interesting that Joel's son that he would give birth to, his name would be He-Man, or Haman, or He-Hemon. I don't know how you pronounce that. But he would be one who would be the singer in David's, um, David's reign. And that's a pretty prominent position. And isn't it interesting that you can, off, you can often have a, a really great father, and then you can have a not-so-great son, and then a really great grandson. It would be nice if it just kept rolling, wouldn't it be nice? Great, great dad, great son, great grandson, but it just it doesn't work that way. We see through the lives of the kings that that was the case. You know, you'd have a, a really great king, and then you'd have a really horrible king, and then he would give birth to a son, and he'd be one of the greatest kings Israel ever knew. And there's no way of knowing which way the human heart goes. And isn't that the way it is with your kids, with your grandkids? You just never know. You just never know. And notice that these, they ruled or they judged in Beersheba. And Beersheba is, is located really somewhere in the midpoint of the land of Israel between the Mediterranean Sea and the south part of the Dead Sea, uh, certainly southwest of uh, Jerusalem. And so that's where his sons were located. But his sons, notice verse 3, did not walk in the ways, in his ways, they turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes, perverted justice. And if this is very reminiscent, really, if you think of the, the man that Samuel grew up under. Do you remember the man? His name was Eli. Samuel was a young man, and he was brought up under this man, Eli, who was a compromised priest. And it just so happened that Samuel, as a very young boy, was there under Eli, and Eli's two sons were despicable, horrible men. They were laying with the women, they were, they were perverting justice, taking bribes, you name it. They were just the most, they should never have been there. Just horrible, evil men in positions of power. And Samuel now, as he's getting older, he's seeing that his sons, although a little bit better, aren't really much better. It's almost like history repeating itself. You know, uh, as we look at, if you go back a couple of chapters to the second chapter of Samuel... Uh, if you would go back there with me, just flip over a couple pages, and let's pick up in verse 12, 1 Samuel. We're going to see how much alike Samuel's sons were to Eli's sons. It's like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That influences, I, I don't know exactly what it is about this, but it's worth noting because um, 
Eli's sons were certainly more corrupt, but only by a little. Notice what it says in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 2. It says, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. And, and it goes on in this, um, in this chapter here and, and talks about how they would just be really ripping the people off as the people were worshiping the Lord. And notice down in um, uh, verse 17 of that chapter, it says, Therefore the sin uh, of the men was very great before the Lord, and, and men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And they notice also down in verse 22, it says, When Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, notice he didn't do anything, but he heard about how the, he, they lay with the women who were assembled at the door of the tabernacle. And so Eli's sons were horrible men. And now Samuel is in his twilight years, his sons are growing up, and the only thing that we don't read about his sons is that they didn't commit fornication with the women, but everything else seems to kind of add up with what was happening in Levi's household, which further demonstrates the, the degradation of morality during that time. Israel still wasn't in a great place. They, they always went from a place of reaching really great heights and then going to great depths and reaching great heights and <laughs> going to great depths. And it was just this constant roller coaster. We see that throughout their history. But there is no guarantee that just because we are walking with the Lord that our kids or our grandkids will walk with the Lord as well. I wish there was some kind of clause. I wish there was some kind of declaration that could be signed, you know, between us and God. Lord, if I had this child, you know, would you make them like, you know, if I'm doing really well, make them like me, you know, where they're walking with the Lord, but it just doesn't work that way. They have to make that decision all by themselves. They can't get into heaven by riding in on their parents' coattails. You've heard that phrase before. And so it makes you wonder, where did Samuel go wrong? I mean, here's a man with a great character. God rose him for such a time as this. I mean, he was at the time when Israel needed a strong moral leader, a moral leader and also a, uh, a leader who was um, a military leader as well. But he was strong in the Lord. What happened with his sons? Was he too busy in the ministry? You know, typically that happens. Sometimes the most famous people in Christendom, I know that Billy Graham and Franklin Graham, there was a time when Franklin Graham rebelled against his father. I think he wrote a book called Rebel with a, Rebel with a Cause or something like that, but basically he rebelled against the Lord because his father was so busy in ministry, he hardly ever saw him. But what happened with Samuel and his sons? It makes you wonder, was he too busy We always have to remember that. That's something I have to remember. Because even though the ministry is important, the family that you have is very important. God gave that to us first before he gave us the ministry. So we can't neglect the one. But did he somehow fail as a father? You know, and maybe he didn't fail at all. Maybe he brought his kids, his boys up under the nurture of the Lord. You know, we don't really know. Maybe they chose. It's always a decision, isn't it? 
We always have a decision to make. And they had to make the decision for themselves. There's some good advice from Solomon for us all. In Proverbs chapter 22, and verse 1, it says this. Proverbs 22. It says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And Samuel had a really great name, didn't he? And his sons were kind of tarnishing that good name. But a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. And a prudent man foresees evil and he hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor in life. Thorns and snares are in the way of, of the perverse, and he who guards his soul will be far from them. Sounds a lot like his sons, but I love this verse. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I would love to know how these young men turned out. But it's important for us as parents to train up our children in the way they should go. And if they have that deep foundation in the word of God, when, they, when everything hits the fan, when they get older, and when they find themselves engrossed in sin or in great trouble, they will always, usually, come back. Because it's the one thing, the one foundation that they knew of. And if you do it when they're young, it's so wonderful because... That's all they've ever known. That's all they've ever heard. And then when they get into the mess, there's only one recourse, and that's to return. Just like the prodigal son. He says, you know, I had it so much better back at my dad's house. I, know, I knew of his unconditional love. And I've got nothing. I've spent all my money. I thought I had all these friends until the money went dry. And then I realized I have no friends. Isn't that usually the case? Every rich person has a lot of friends until the money goes. Then all of a sudden, they don't hang around anymore. The parties don't happen. The free food and the free booze no longer happen. Notice in verse 4 it says, Then all the elders of Israel, they gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Look, you're old. Well, thank you very much. Samuel, you'll need that oil of Olay smothered all over you. It can help you look younger too. Now, he was old, and your sons did do not walk in your ways. Now, make us a king to judge us like the nations. Proverbs chapter 13 says, A wise son heeds his father in his instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And his sons evidently didn't listen. But now he's old, and now the people are like, You know what? You were a great leader, Samuel, but your sons are not like you. Make us a king. Make us a king. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Notice that now they're going to choose a monarchy over a theocracy. And this is really bad news because, at least for three reasons. Number one, Samuel's sons were corrupt and they were frustrated. They're like, they're, he's not like you. They are not like you. We'd much rather have you, but guess what? You're, you're passing from the scene. Make us a king. Make us a king. Make us another judge. Notice they didn't say make us another judge because God makes the judge, right? It's not passed down. It makes you wonder what would have happened if they just said, you know what, you're passing from the scene. I believe God probably would have raised up another judge. 
But that's not what happened. That's not what history bears out. And the second thing, perhaps the reason they wanted a king, is that they weren't content in being unique among the nations and having God govern them. And thirdly, they wanted to be like everyone else. You know, it's funny, when you're young, you want to be different. I remember when I was in my early teens, I wanted to be different. That was the cry of every teenager's heart. Well, I just want to be different. But why is it then that we all buy the same clothes, we all buy the same shoes, we all listen to the same music, and we all do the same things? And we're so uh, conforming to one another. We're not really being individuals. But, you know, that's part of the process of growing, and we know that. And there's nothing wrong with that, per se. But they were unique. God made them unique. He wanted them to, contain, to be maintain that uniqueness. And even peer pressure, you know, it doesn't happen with just individuals, but it happens with presidents, kings, countries. We want to be like those other countries. And again, what was so bad about what God had done with them? Was it so bad that God brought them through the desert for 40 years? I mean, think about it. The Sinai Desert is not a really nice place, and yet hundreds of thousands, some even estimate one million or one and a half million people are coming out of Egypt, and God is feeding them every single day. He's giving them water to drink, and the Bible says that the sandals on their shoes, on their feet, didn't even wear out. He provided for everything along the way, and all the while they were complaining and griping and, and always chafing against the authority that God had given to Moses. And God proved them in the desert. He couldn't bring them into the promised land because they weren't ready, because they were going to face giants. They were going to face some real problems. And God had to try them in the desert. And many of them perished except for a generation. And God had to purify. He had to learn them. He had to school them. He had to test their hearts. And a remnant came into the promised land. It's interesting that Saul, being the first king, Saul was a Benjamite. We're going to find that out later. He's from the line of Kish, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. But I find it interesting in Genesis chapter 49, you don't have to go there, but you might want to write the reference off the side of your Bible, uh, Genesis 49, verses 9 through 12. Genesis 49, verse 9 through 12. And that was really when Jacob was on his deathbed. And he was prophesying over his 12 sons. And you remember what happened when he got to Judah. He said, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He, bow, he bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? And notice in verse 10 of Genesis 49, the scepter, this is the right to rule. This is the symbol of, of kingship. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. This is a very messianic promise of Jesus Christ coming to, through the line of Judah. And so the, 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 Jesus, the Messiah, would come through the line, or come through the line, excuse me, of Judah. That would be the line of the kings. And that's the way it was. So what's with Benjamin? What's with Saul? It was almost like from the very beginning, he didn't quite fit. He was sort of like a, a, a foot out of joint. He was sort of like a loose tooth. It just didn't work. It didn't fit. And yet God was very gracious to Saul, gave him every opportunity to succeed. But Saul quickly disobeyed God and wanted to do his own thing. 
And on top of all of this, they broke the Ten Commandments. What was the very first commandment? Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. God spoke these words. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then what did he say? You shall have no other gods before me. The word gods is lowercase g, which means rulers or or, um, a, a judge. You shall have no rulers or judge other than me. And yet they wanted a king. So already they're in deep trouble. Verse 6, though, back in our text, it says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel did what? He threw a a temper tantrum. He stomped up and down, pulled out his beard. He started throwing things at people, yelling obscenities. Is that what he did? No, it says, So Samuel prayed to the Lord. That's a pretty good thing. That's a really good thing. Would to God that we do that more when we find something that we don't like. And I got to take that as medicine for myself because lately there's been a lot of things I've been grumbling about in my heart and even outwardly. But I love the response of Samuel. He didn't throw a fit or a temper tantrum. He prayed to the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. And then in verse 7 it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, notice, heed the voice of the people. Are you kidding me? Lord, what they want to do is not right. No, Samuel, I know. Just, Just heed their voice. Listen to them. Do what they say. Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Three times in this chapter, we're going to see God saying this very same thing to Samuel. Heed their voice. Heed their voice. Heed their voice. There's something about three. He says it here in verse 7. He says it again in the next two verses in verse 9. He says it again in verse 22 of this chapter. And there's a dangerous thing when God gives you what you want because of your rebellion. You want something so bad, and that was really their their heart. They wanted a king. They didn't want things to continue the way they wanted. They didn't want to be governed by God anymore. They wanted to be like everybody else, want to have a king over us. You know, free will is a dangerous thing. It's a a double-edged sword. You may get what you want, but it will turn to gravel in your mouth most of the time. It may be sweet in your mouth right now, but it will soon be bitter in your stomach when we get what we want. Instead of surrendering my will to the will of God. Has anybody wrestled against God with your will? Lord, I want to do this. I want to do it this way. And God says, I don't want you to do that. And please don't do that way because you're going to be going down a whole road that's going to lead you to to destruction. And you know the scary thing about free will is that when we fight, when we fight, when we fight, and we dig our heels in. Have you seen a a lady? I I remember seeing a lady um, taking a dog for a walk, and it was this little poodle, and and she's dragging the poodle. And the poodle has got, you know, he's got his feet, you know, and he's got his feet all fours, and they're just stuck in the ground, and, and she's trying to pull him, and he's just like, you know, the thing's coming up around his neck and almost ready to come over the top of it. You've seen the picture. <laughs> and that's the way we can be, too. And there comes a point where God says, you really want it that bad? You really want it that bad? Okay. You fought me. And I'll let you. I'll let you have what you want. I'll see you in a little while. (laughs) And then he just 
the presence of the Lord just kind of disappears. I mean, he's there with you, don't get me wrong, but he just kind of, his influence, he just kind of, he just kind of waits. And then we get into trouble, and then we come back, and the Lord is not upset about that. He's not like a human father, finally coming back, huh? Told you so. Have you had anybody tell you that before? Have a father? Well, I, see, I told you what would happen, and now you're coming back with your tail between your legs. You ever had somebody nasty like that speak to you? God doesn't speak to you like that. But he does let you run with it. It's sort of like bait, you know? It's like for those of you who fish, it's like throwing out a shrimp down in Florida, and you got this big spool of, 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 of line, and you just run with it, and you run with it, and you got it in your mouth, and you're just taking off, and you just let the spool go hundreds of yards, and the fish is just thinking, oh, I got away with it, I got away with it, and, just, and all of a sudden, and that's where the rubber hits the road when we find that what the decision we made was horrible because we wanted our will to be done. There's always a consequence for rebellion, for disobedience. And Israel's going to find that out. They're going to see that the king that they've chosen was not really a good king. And they disobeyed the Lord. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, the Lord says, and this is before the flood happened, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. God will not always put up with our, with our fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. Sometimes he'll just give you what you want. And I fought the Lord and got what I wanted. And I realized that really, after a while, it just kind of lost its glimmer. It lost its luster, whatever it was, the newness, the whatever. The, it just kind of fades away and then you're on to the next thing. And yet you did anything to achieve that one thing, to get that one thing. You, you, you had so much sacrifice to get that one thing. And the Lord, it's almost like he's saying, was it really worth it? Was it really worth getting what you want? I remember a young lady who was in the fellowship here many years ago, at least 15 years ago. Her friend got married, and she was so bitterly jealous that her friend got married before her. And so she went out and got married she went out. It was such a, an idol to her in her heart. She had to be married. It was her will be done. And she wanted it so bad that she went out and, believe me, ladies, if you're, if you're pretty, it doesn't take long to find a husband. You find, might find the wrong husband. And that's exactly what she did. And her marriage didn't last very long. I think she had a child. And the whole thing dissolved very bitterly. But she just had to be married, had to be married. My will be done. Instead of waiting upon the Lord and just swallowing it and asking the Lord to examine her heart, it ended very nastily. It was very horrible to see. You remember in Numbers chapter 22 that Balaam, or Balak, the son of, or the king of Moab, when the children of Israel were coming through the desert before they entered the promised land, that Balak, the, the king, he saw this huge number of people coming. So he, he hires out Balaam. And Balaam comes and he says, just curse these people. I don't know what the guy was thinking of, but Balaam says, no, I, you know, um, you know, I, I really can't do that. And, uh, but I'll pray to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Balaam and said, don't you go with these men, Balaam. Don't go with these men. And so he wakes up the next day and the same group of guys come back and say, hey, will you come and curse these people for us? And didn't God tell him, no, don't go with the people? But what does he say? Well, let me just pray, because now they bring gifts and money. Now they come with a blank check. 
And he's like, hmm, better go pray to the Lord again and find out what he really meant. You know, did he really mean that, Lord? And then he goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, you know what, Balaam, just go. Just go. And it says in Numbers 22, verse 22, it says the ang- God's anger was aroused because he went. God told him to go, but he, co- he told him to go because Balaam's heart was so wrong. And God knew his, his heart was wrong because now he goes back a second time asking for you know, clarification. Did you really mean this? Now I got you know, a lot of gold and stuff. Are you sure you don't want me to go? And he's like, you know what, Balaam? You're gonna, we're going to go this round and round and round and round, and it's never going to end. Just go but you do what I tell you to do. But God wasn't pleased with him. In fact, God caused an angel to come before the donkey. Remember the, the situation where the Lord, he was completely blind to the angel, but the donkey was very cognizant that the angel was there and crushed his foot against the wall, trying to avoid this angel in the way. And finally, the, you know, he swats the donkey, and the donkey's like, what have I done to you? <laughs> and then the scary thing is they're having a conversation. You know you're mad when you're talking to a donkey. But again, he want, he, in his heart, he was a man of covetousness. He wanted it, and so God just says, you know what? That's really where you're at, Balaam. We don't know how long God had been wrestling with Balaam before this time. But the Lord's just like, you know what? Just go. And that's always a bad thing when God says, go ahead. Not a good thing. So, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, God says, in which they have forsaken me and they've served other gods, so they are going to do to you also. And so, as they disobeyed the Lord, they would also disobey Samuel. And it's interesting, you'd think that they would, you know, um, you know if, if they disobey God, they're certainly going to disobey him. What did Jesus say in John's Gospel, chapter 15? Verse 18, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Or if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. And God is saying, Samuel, they're not listening to me. And believe me, they're not going to listen to you at all either. You know, we can sometimes think that because we're Christians, maybe because we even got, uh, maybe because we're gifted, you might have a gift, you might be uh, attractive, you might have all the right pedigrees, you may even look nice. (laughs) And we think that people are going to treat us any better than they treated Jesus, and it never works. If what they did to Jesus, they're going to do it to you too. Because a servant is not above his master. Notice verse 9, now therefore heed their voice. The second time God tells them, now listen to them, Samuel, if that's what they want, give it to them. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king that shall reign over them. Reign over them. And this is really what accountability is all about. God is saying, is that what you really want? Well, let me tell you what's going to happen if you go down this road. And then you have another opportunity to choose whether you want to go down this road. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. 
And he will appoint captains over thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to take his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. Was there any time that when God had the, the judges that these kinds of things happened? Where they had to serve the judge in, in that way? No. But this is what's going to happen if you serve this king. In fact, it's interesting here in verse 14 in our text, it says that he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He's going to take them. He may keep them for himself. He may give them to his servants. It doesn't, you know, who knows what he's going to do with them. But we see this in the life of Ahab. In 1 Kings chapter 21, it records this for us. You recall this event in the life of Ahab, the king of Judah, or king of Israel, excuse me. So it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel. It happened to be right next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's so near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you money for it. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. In other words, no, I'm not giving you my land. So Ahab, I love this, Ahab went to his house, sullen and displeased, because of the, Lord, the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. And he lay by his bed, and he turned his face away, and he would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife Jezebel, this wonderful godly woman, Jezebel, just the epitome of everything sacrosanct, Sacrosanct. She just, she was pure white. She was like an angel, an angel of God in, in, in white linen. She even had wings, I'm sure. Just this wonderful woman. No, she was not anything of the sort, was she? She was an evil woman. And what did she say? But Jezebel. So the plot thickens. His wife, she came to him and she said, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And he said to her, and, 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 I'm so tempted to go into a character here, but I won't. Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will, I will give you not my vineyard. And, and just like a mother speaking to a child, can you hear Jezebel? And then she says in verse 7, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat your food, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal. Now she's like his, she's, he's, he's just a proxy at this point. Now she's doing it all for him. And, and, and basically, the, the long and short of it is, she sets him up to have a big feast, and they put him in honor in the very highest seats, and then they get a couple of scoundrels to come in and, and, and make false claims about him, and then they, they will actually, because of those claims, they will stone him outside the city, and he dies and then Jez, uh, Jezebel comes to her husband and says, hey, guess what? That land that you wanted, it's, it's yours because the guy who owned them is now uh, pushing up daisies. I took care of it for you. Wow, what a gal. Can you imagine? Notice the lack of rapport and the respect that Ahab had with the people. It's very different when we look at the life of David. David, if you remember, in the latter part of his years, he, he counted the people of Israel in his twilight years of his, you know, he's 
getting close to 70 years of age, somewhere in that area. And he counts the people of Israel. God brings a plague. And you remember, in order to stop the plague, he would, he would actually go to a man called Aruna up to his threshing floor. And he went up to Aruna and he goes, uh, I would like to buy your land to set up an altar to worship the Lord. And Aruna's heart, because he loved David, what a difference than what we saw with Ahab and this guy Naboth. Naboth didn't really want anything to do with Ahab. He knew his character. But this man, Aruna, looked at David and said, David, I'll give everything to you. You just take it. You name what you want. I'll even provide everything you need for the sacrifice. You can have the land too. And David says, oh no, I can't worship that way. If it doesn't cost me something, I'm going to pay you what it's worth. And so we did. And so we did. But just a wonderful character of David and and what a wonderful heart uh, the people had for him and him for them. But back in our text, it says, and one of the things, the behavior of a king is verse 15. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants, the finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. It's interesting, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17 because prior to the children of Israel coming into the promised land, remember, the book of Deuteronomy is really a second telling of the law. And so as they're there on the east side of the Jordan, right before they would cross over, Moses is talking to them. And in chapter 17, now remember, this is hundreds of years prior to what we're looking at. And God anticipated this day in Israel's history. He anticipated it. In Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14, notice what it says. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 20, actually. It says, when you come into the land, now this is God speaking, hundreds of years before this is occurring. When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Wow, you'd almost think that God knew their heart. (laughs) Did he not know their heart? Did he not know their history? Isn't he Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end? Doesn't he dwell outside of time? Can't he tell the end from the beginning? And he's basically telling them hundreds of years in advance, this is what's going to happen when you come into the land. And he says it right here. And you possess the land and dwell it, and you say within your heart, set a king over me like all the nations that are round about me. And he says, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren who shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but notice verse 16, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, because that's what the other kings did. It was just very natural to amass a big army. Because if you got a big army and you got a really big king, praise the Lord. But no, not to multiply horses, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. <coughs> Excuse me. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write himself a copy of the law. And and it goes on, and we're not going to finish the rest of that. But what I find interesting is that they, for our purposes tonight, they weren't supposed to multiply horses to themselves, and they weren't to multiply wives to themselves. 
And we see the very same thing happening. And in fact, very early in the monarchy, after Saul, you remember, there was King David. And then King David had a son. His name was Solomon. And what happened? Just three kings into this thing, what do we see? Solomon basically blatantly going against all of these things, most of these things. I find it interesting that Solomon was, he truly was the wisest man on the earth. There was no one wise like him, nor after him, except for Jesus. God gave him that gift, and that was an unconditional gift that God had given him, an unconditional promise. He made him great, there's no doubt about it. And his heart was good in the beginning, but as he got older and he started to multiply wives and the success started getting to him, he started getting into and dabbling into idolatry and, and, and eventually started worshiping these other gods. What does it say for us in 1 Kings chapter 11? It says, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor, sh- nor they with you. Surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Sounds like God, again, knew what he was talking about. Did he not know what he was talking about? Isn't that what happened to Solomon? And this is, you know, early in his reign. And Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. That's a thousand women in your life. I mean, you can imagine having dinner one night, and you got three of them sitting at your table, and like, what's your name again? What's your name again? What's your name? You don't remember my name? How could you know? I'm out of here. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. So he had, he had a thousand women in his life. And his wife's notice, turned his heart from God. Didn't God share with him? Did not he read this, Deuteronomy 17, at some point? Maybe several times as he was growing up? Even as king, reading it? And then finding himself going right into the same thing himself. Multiplying, I mean, you know, it's one thing having seven wives or three wives, but for heaven's sakes, a thousand? For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord as God, and as his heart was with David his father. And so it goes on and it talks about how he built these altars upon the high places for all of his wives' gods, and he, he worshipped them as well. And his heart was not right with God. And what else? In Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 25, Solomon had 4,000 horse stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the kings at Jerusalem. In fact, when we were in uh, Israel this last uh, February and March, we went to Megiddo, and Megiddo was one of the chariot cities that Solomon had. And you can still see those stables there today. They've unearthed them, and you can see them. This is where Solomon's horses, some of them were located there in Megiddo in a chariot city. And he wasn't supposed to do that. And yet he did anyway. In fact, the book of Lamentations, or not Lamentations, but the book of Ecclesiastes is really Solomon coming to the end of all this, starting off really well, turning, and then finally at the end of his life saying, you know what? The whole thing was a big sham. (laughs) The whole thing was a big everything. 
It's all emptiness. Apart from serving the Lord, you know, everything was empty. Is Solomon in heaven? I believe he is. But boy, did he learn something. I mean, think about it. He went through some really serious waters. He experienced the very best of everything. God prospered him, even the things that he didn't ask for. Even he experienced life to the fullest on both sides of the fence. It would have been better for him to stay on the one side, but he went over on the other side, the dark side. He put on his Darth Vader helmet and went over to the other side. And notice back in our text, it says, and, and when you ask for that king and all these things begin to happen to you, what does it say in verse 18 back here in uh, 1 Samuel 8? It says, and you will cry out on that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. You've chosen it. You've wanted him. And here he is. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. You can cry to me all you want. And boy, that's a scary thing. Like in, uh, in Jeremiah 7, chapter 7, and also in Jeremiah 14, we read about that where God says, you know what, don't even bother praying. That's a scary place, folks. I hope I never cross that line, that Rubicon, and it's different for everybody. It's not the same for everybody. But there comes a point where God says, you know what, if that's what you want, I'm going to let you have it. Or maybe you've gone too far and you're thinking, you know, I can continue doing this lifestyle. I can continue entering into sin. I'm not going to get caught. You haven't caught me for 20 years, Lord. What's another 20 years? I'm just going to continue doing it. I'll continue to ask for your forgiveness and I'll just continue doing my own thing. And you don't know that the very next day is the last day of your life because of something you do. You have a sin unto death. Maybe it's a cocaine habit, a heroin addict, whatever it is. It could be an illicit relationship, and you find yourself with some incurable disease that's going to kill you. Like AIDS. Remember back in the 80s and the 90s? There was no cure for it. People were dying. Nevertheless, verse 19, the people refused. They refused to obey. That's what you call obstinate. Obstinate heart. Just, I will not. I will not. And boy, God hates a heart like that. He hates a heart that's just digging in their heels saying, I refuse to obey. And they refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us. And they just want it so bad. And God says, okay. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you lust for. Be careful what drives you. What is it that drives you? What is the thing that's that the passion of your heart? What is it? Is it from the Lord or is it just you? Is it just some lust that you have? Is it just something that you want to do to make you feel better, to make you more noticed, to make you more reputable, to make you feel better about yourself, a better self-esteem, whatever it is. Whatever it is, whatever it is, is an idol and it must be crucified before it's too late, before your life is shipwrecked. So many people today, our lives are shipwrecked because they refuse. They have an impenitent, obstinate heart. I will not, they say. And man, I tell you, it drives me nuts to see when things like that happen. And you know, sometimes God is always gracious. He is always gracious always gracious but there is a point where he says you know what I gotta, I gotta, I'm going to give you what you want be careful what you ask for 
They were like stubborn children. No, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us. And not only that, but to go out before us and fight our battles. The price of conformity to the world is great. If you want to be conformed to Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. Is it going to be easy? No. But if you want to be conformed to the world, you're in for a bad deal. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so here it is again, verse 22, our last verse. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice, Samuel. It's the third time he says it. He said it in verse 6. He said it in verse 9. Now here in the last verse, he says, heed their voice. They want it. Give it to them. Heed their voice. Make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. And then we'll look next week as we look at chapter 9. We're going to see the Lord um, through a series of things. He's going to choose a king for them. He's going to be the one that they really want. And it says that Saul was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. And he had beautiful hair. Just a handsome fellow. Drove a Harley Davidson. Had the rough beard. You know, the blue jeans, you know, the tattoo says mom, and another one that just says hey. Handsome fellow. Wow. To be like him. All the women, you know, their heart skips when they see him go by in his Harley. He's such an awesome man. He's not very smart, but man, he's got all the he's got all the package, man. God says, That's what you want. I'll give you the best. Israel has to offer. There he is. Handsome fellow. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you strive for. You may just get it. Let's stand together. Father, as we read about Saul, as we read about the people of Israel and their attitude, Lord, it reminds me of me, unfortunately, especially before I came to know you, and even sometimes after I came to know you. Lord, it's so easy for us to get our eyes focused off of you and onto things and onto the things that we desire, God. And uh, thank you, Lord, for... Lord, as we have prayed, uh, Lord, help us to pray in sincerity and in earnest, Lord, about things around us, about every detail of our lives, especially the, the small things, especially, God, uh, and certainly the big things, because, Lord, they, they put us on a trajectory of faith in our walk with you. Lord, we don't want to get what we want. Lord, I'm so glad that you intervened in my life. I had a plan for my life. I, I wanted to do something. I had very something specific that I wanted to do with my life, and I'm so thankful. And I know I could probably speak for all of us here in this room. Lord, that you invaded our life, and you changed our trajectory into a different place, and you knew what was best for us. And I can say with all of my heart now, Lord, and I hope we can all say it as well, that, Lord, the changes that you've made in our life have been good. They've been really good. Had they been easy? No, but they've been so good, Lord. You've given peace, and you've given us a straight path. You've given us a conscience that's clear that we can rest at night and not have to worry about a whole boatload of sins that we've got to now cover up for. 
Lord, help us to live simple, pure, and holy lives. Lives that are exemplary around, uh, from everyone around us. They would see our good works and they would glorify you. Lord, thank you for this chapter. And Lord, help us to learn. Help us to learn to be careful about what we ask for and not to be so obstinate and so kicking and fighting and pinching and scratching to get what we want. God, help us to surrender early and receive the greatest blessing, which is your perfect will for our lives. Lord, would you please work that in and through us tonight and all throughout this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful night.